And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Today we've got, um, I don't know, some may think it's odd, but what we're doing, we're continuing in Luke and we're, I've chosen, we did an overview about three or four weeks ago on the whole crucifixion at once. And there's a lot in there, particularly the sayings of Jesus that we've gone back and covered, and this is the third. And so we're talking about dying well. How many in here want to die well? Right? Hopefully we want to live well, but we want to die well as well. Dying words, especially when spoken in the throes of persecution or great suffering, um, they're significant. They reveal a man's true values. The English martyr Hugh Latimer was tied back to back to Nicholas Ridley as the two were being burned at the stake. He called out, called out as the flames were lit, Be of good comfort, Brother Ridley, and play the man. By God's grace, we shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust never shall be put out. As the flame uh, fire was kindled, Ridley cried out, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit, receive my spirit. And he repeated that, let, that letter phrase often. Hugh Latimer, he cried out, Father of heaven, receive my soul. Another English martyr, John Bradford, he turned to a young man who was suffering with him and he said, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. Now, as Christians, as I said, we all desire, in Paul's words, that, that Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by death, um, whether by life or by death. Now, we want not only to live to His glory, but also to die to His glory. We want to die well. Now, our greatest example of dying well, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. From the cross, as His life is ebbing out of Him, Jesus uttered seven recorded cries. We call them the, sat, the seven last sayings of Jesus. The first cry was the cry of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right? It shows us His forgiving speeches, uh, spirit. It teaches us how we should forgive those who have wronged us. His second utterance was a word of salvation. Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Well, of course, that shows us His great mercy towards sinners and that the salvation that He is both able and willing to confer on every repentant sinner is by grace alone. It's apart from human works. We looked at that just a couple weeks ago. Jesus' third cry was a word of love towards His mother. Woman, behold your son. And to the Apostle John, then, behold your mother. It shows us the importance of loving and caring for our parents. His fourth cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That shows us his agony in bearing our sins. We learn of his great love in being willing to be cursed of God on our behalf. His fifth cry, I am thirsty. That shows us his human nature, his physical suffering, that he who died in our place was fully human. Uh, John records that Jesus uttered it in order that Scripture might be fulfilled. Well, that, that teaches us that even in the throes of suffering or death, our lives should be in accord with God's Word. 
Jesus' sixth cry, it is finished. That proclaims the great fact that Jesus accomplished the work for which the Father had sent him into the world. Now, we're fixing to go into season, right, where we're, we're thinking an awful lot about the birth, the advent, the coming, right, of Emmanuel with us. God is with us now in the flesh. But folks, the reason he came was to die. He came so that in the end he could say, it is finished. I have accomplished all that you have given me to do. Well, his final cry is the one that we come to in our study of Luke this morning. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, with these words, Jesus breathed his last. With many dying men, you, you have to bend down near them to hear them uh, and, and listen carefully because they're barely able to whisper their final words. But Jesus cried out in a loud voice for his final words. His enemies had accused him of calling God his father, thus equating himself equal with God. They mocked him on the cross, saying that God no longer delighted in him, or else he would rescue him. But Jesus shows here that God in this moment was still his father, and that he trusted the father to receive his spirit. We see Jesus um, dying even as he lived in total dependence upon the Father, submissive to his will. Well, with these final words, Jesus shows us how to die well. And to die well, we must live and die by trusting in God. Let's pray. Father, through your scripture, you teach us so much. And this morning, we're looking at Jesus' last words on the cross Father, where he commits his spirit to you. Father, there's learning for us this morning in how we can die well. So we ask that you would just speak to our hearts, uh, enable these truths in our lives to transform us, to live lives that are pleasing to you, so that when the time comes, we will die a death that is pleasing to you. So Father, do it for your honor and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The words that Jesus speak here, they're actually a quotation from Psalm 31, 5. This is where David expresses his trust in God. But Jesus makes two changes. First, he adds the word Father. But he also omits the phrase, omits the phrase, you have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Jesus knew God intimately as Father in a way that even David could not. And unlike David, Jesus didn't need to be redeemed or uh, ransomed. He had no sin. But even though Jesus prayed this psalm uniquely as the Son of God, we can learn from His example how to trust in God each day so that we are prepared when the time comes to die well. Now I'm going to focus on four lessons. Number one, trusting in God means knowing Him as our Father even in severe trials. In the first recorded words of Jesus, He called God His Father. Do you remember where it was? Jesus was about 12. He was in the temple and He was talking to Mary and Joseph. And what did He tell them? Did you not know that I must be in what? My Father's house. Three of Jesus' final sayings are prayers. And in the first and the last, Jesus addresses God as Father. 
It's only in the second, as he is burying our sin, that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? During that horrible time, the greatest mystery in all of history took place as God the Father turned his back on God the Son as he bore our sins. God, this is what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Now the fact that just before he died, Jesus again comes back to that more intimate address, Father, it shows that the worst agony of the cross, the bearing of our sins, was over. Jesus had drunk the cup of God's wrath against sin. God was appeased and now fellowship was restored again, never to be broken. Now, the only agony yet to be endured was to go through physical death, and we talked about this a while back. Physical death is God's curse on the fallen human race. As Jesus faced that final trial, suffering the horrible torture of the cross, He calls out, Father, and He entrusts Himself again to the Father's keeping. And in so doing, Jesus gives us an example of how we are to trust in God as our loving Father, even when we face the most difficult and horrible trials imaginable. J.I. Packer, in his classic, Knowing God. Have you ever read Knowing God? It's worth reading. I'll just tell you, it's worth reading. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as a father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. End quote. Packer goes on to show that God has not left us to guess what the term father means by us drawing analogies from our human fatherhood. Rather, in the Word, He has revealed the meaning of father through Jesus' relationship with His heavenly Father. And Packer draws out four implications of this relationship. First, it implied authority. The Father commands and the Son obeys. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. Second, it implied uh, affection. The Father loves the Son, and the Son abides in the Father's love. Third, it implied fellowship. Jesus was not alone because the Father was with Him. Fourth, it implied honor. The Father willed to honor the Son. Now, all of these things apply to us as God's adopted children. We must obey God as His children. God loves us as His children. We walk in fellowship with Him. Jesus' prayer is that we may someday share the glory which Jesus enjoys. Do you understand that this father-child relationship is the highest privilege that the gospel offers? It's even higher than justification, being made right with God simply because of the, the richer relationship with God that fatherhood involves. 
Now, we're not looking here at the universal fatherhood of God. There is a limited sense in which that uh, God is the father of all by virtue of his being the creator. Uh, Paul actually mentions this in Acts 17. But here we're looking at the fact that we are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3.26. And we share in all the blessings that God has prepared for his children. Indeed, as Packer asserts, the entire Christian life has to be understood in terms of adoption. Ask yourself, do I know God in that way? Intimately, as my Father, even when He puts me in a severe trial. Charles Spurgeon, he pointed out that we only trust in what we know. He also wrote, in this fact lies our chief comfort. In our hour of trouble, in our time of warfare, let us say, Father, to help you in sore suffering and death, cry, Father. Your main strength lies in your being truly a child of God, end quote. If you cultivate that intimate relationship with God as your Father every day, well, when the ultimate crisis of death comes, you can call out to Him as Jesus did. Well, number two, trusting in God means taking to everything to the Father in prayer. Now, as seen throughout Luke, Jesus was a man of prayer. Now, if there was ever a man who you would think did not need to pray, that Jesus would be that man. And yet, as a man who showed us what it means to walk in perfect obedience to God, Jesus prayed often. He, he was our example in prayer. Prayer is a language of dependence. It's safe to say that if we have not prayed, we have not trusted God as we should. We make our needs known. We, we cast our cares on, his, on Him, and we look forward to His fatherly kindness. Now, you might say that everyone is going to pray when it comes time to face death, but that is not necessarily so. Think about that unrepentant thief on the cross, Right? He didn't pray as his life ebbed away from him. He railed against Jesus. He blamed everyone else for his troubles. He was filled with anger and frustration, but he did not pray. Some may be too terrified of God to pray on their deathbeds, although that seems to me uh, seems to be a little more rare these days in our day of irreverence and just flippant pride. Others may be oblivious to the impending danger. Uh, of judgment uh, that they're going to shortly face. They don't understand what comes next. They die with outward peace, but not independent prayer because they don't sense their peril. But Christians should die with their thoughts, with their words, Godward. If prayer has been our immediate response to every need or crisis throughout life, then when the final crisis comes, we will pray. I've got two examples. One, you've heard me many times, uh, Ms. Kay Strickland, when she was up there at St. Augustine Plantation, every time I'd come in, she'd look at me and she'd just kind of pat her hand and she'd say, Brother Dave, why am I still here? Why, why has God not taken me home? She was ready to go. She had lived a good life. She, she was dying well. She, she wanted to be with God. Now, I've already forgot what my other one was. I hate that. How many do that? 
Oh, I got two things I want to tell you. You get halfway through the first and you've forgotten what the second is. Okay, that's what's going on here. Uh, so, when it, you know, if, if God has been, if our, if our thoughts have been Godward throughout our life, when it comes to die, we will die well. So, are you cultivating that habit of making prayer your first result rather than your or, uh, resort rather than your last resort? Vance Havner, he's an evangelist, and he tells a story about an elderly lady who was greatly disturbed by her many trials, both real and imaginary. Finally, someone in her family tactfully told her, Grandma, we've done all we can do for you. You'll just have to trust God for the rest. All of a sudden, a look of despair just spread all over her face, and she said, Oh dear, has it come to that? And Havner says, it always comes to that. So why not begin with that? God's Word tells us to bring every concern to the Lord. And since He offers to handle our problems, why not let Him? Well, number three, trusting in God means leaning on the promises of God. As I said, Jesus' prayer here was a quotation from Psalm 31.5. This is where David expresses his trust in God as his refuge and deliverer in a time of great peril. From his battle with Satan in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry to his final breath on the cross, Jesus lived in dependence on and in obedience to Scripture. Three times with Satan, Jesus replied, what? It is written. And then he cited Scripture. On the cross, his second prayer, that was actually a quotation of Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't say, you know, I know that there's a verse somewhere that relates to my current situation, but I just can't remember what it is. Hey, if you'll bring me a concordance, I'll find that verse. No, he had saturated his mind so thoroughly with Scripture that it just kind of oozed out of him. It controlled his every thought. Now, the fact that Jesus prayed Scripture back to God, that is a fantastic model for us. We cannot pray better than, we, better than when we pray the words of Scripture. When we read the Psalms, we should let the psalmist's expression of praise be our expression. When, his cry, when, he, when we see his cries for help in his crisis, that should be our cry in our crisis. When you read the prayers of Paul, and there are quite a few in the New Testament, make them your prayer for those on your prayer list. In Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, when he prays that the God and the Father of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of, of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, and that you might know the hope of his calling, and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and the surpassing greatness of his power towards us, make that your prayer for yourself and for others. Prayer is the only way that we bring the promises of God down into shoe leather so that we can lean on them and obey them. But you can't lean on and obey God's promises if you don't even know them. So you, you have to begin by saturating your mind with Scripture, reading it over and over so that it begins to shape your very thought processes. Write down, I know this is tough, 
the older I get, the tougher it gets, but it's still worth doing. Write down and commit to memory certain verses that relate to problems that you're currently facing. Are you struggling with temptation? Memorize 1 Corinthians 10, 12-13. There Paul writes, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but is such as common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. That's a great promise for temptation. Do you struggle with anger? James 1, 19 and 20 says, Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I mean, he gave us two ears. Why? So we can listen better. He only gave us one mouth. Right? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Is your problem a sharp tongue? Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome, literally rotten, let no rotten word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. You know what that is? That's building up. Speak words that build others, up, build others up according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. Are your words gracious? The story is told of Crowfoot. He was the chief of the Blackfoot Confederacy in southern Alberta, Canada. He granted permission to the Canadian Pacific Railway to cross Blackfoot land, and when he did, the railroad gave him a lifetime pass to ride on the train. He was so proud. He put it in a leather case, and he wore it around his neck for the rest of his life. But you know what? He never used it to ride the train. Many Christians are like that with God's promises. They put them on plaques on the wall. They sing songs about them on Sunday, but they never actually use them. And the major reason they don't ever use them is because they don't know them. I have never had God miraculously put into my mind a verse that I haven't read or worked at memorizing. But he often brings to mind, right at the moment of temptation or crisis or whatever the need is, a verse that I have worked at memorizing. Even if I never fully did, it's there. Jesus could pray and lean on God's promises at the moment of death because he had saturated his mind with God's word. And we need to do likewise. Well, fourth, trusting in God means entrusting your eternity to him. Jesus commits His Spirit to the Father, meaning that part of Him that exists beyond death. The Bible teaches that people are made up of the material body, right? That's what we can feel, touch, that type of thing. And of the immaterial soul and spirit. Now, sometimes the New Testament, it uses the term soul and spirit rather synonymously, interchangeably, as if, you know, they're the same thing. Two other times... It distinguishes them because it actually says soul and spirit. Well, when a distinction is made, soul refers to the whole inner life of the person, whereas spirit refers to a particular part of that inner life that is most sensitive to God. It's where we relate to God. 
Prior to Christ, that spirit, which is part of the soul, is dead. Paul tells us that. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. But Christ, God, made us to, uh, alive together with Christ. That's our spirit. That's regeneration. We breathe, he breathes life into our spirit. And now our spirit is again in communion with God. Now, at death, the spirit, which is eternal, is separated from the physical body which ceases to live. For example, when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, it says that her spirit returned. When Christ returns, believers will receive new spiritual bodies similar to Jesus' resurrection body, and it won't be subject to disease and death. How many are looking forward to that? That's a big deal, y'all. By entrusting His Spirit to the Father, Jesus was entrusting His life beyond physical death to God. He was trusting God to raise Him from the dead to give Him a new resurrection body. You remember Stephen, he, he did the same thing toward Jesus. He was about to die, and the, the heavens opened up, and he saw Jesus standing there. Everywhere else Jesus is mentioned in heaven, except one other place in Revelation, He's always sitting sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Here it says he was standing, and, he, and Stephen saw him. And Stephen said, Lord Jesus, because he saw Jesus, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Paul uses a related Greek word for commit when he says, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul had entrusted his eternal destiny to Christ. And he knew that it was safe because it was in Christ's mighty hands. Becoming a Christian means uh, that rather than trusting in yourself or your good works for, for your eternal life with God, you trust in what Jesus did in dying on the cross as the just penalty for your sins. And if God holds our security, holds our eternity, it is secure not because of anything in us, but because it rests in God's hands. And He has promised to guard it, to keep it. John Calvin writes, Everyone who shall believe in Christ when He comes to die will not breathe His soul at random into the air, but will resort it to a faithful guardian who keeps, it, keeps in safety whatever has been delivered to Him by the Father. Some of, you, some of you know this story. I don't know that I've ever told the whole story, and I'm doing a little bit context different now. On July 8, 1991, it was a Monday. Uh, our whole family had gathered. My mother was going to have open-heart surgery for the second time. She had it 16 years earlier. Everything had gone great, uh, but it was time again, and it was, really was a last resort. They had told us that. She'd been having multiple, all week long, multiple little heart attacks. And they, medication was not touching it. They said the only thing we can do is, and she was not a good candidate. She was 73, but, you know, her heart was kind of worn out. And so we're, it, it, it's my dad, my sisters, and I. We're, we're standing just outside the operating room, and, and, and mother's laying there. And the girls go first, and they get their hugs and kisses, and then daddy does the same. I'm the last one to talk to her. And I just walk over, and I grab her by the hand. I look her in the eyes, and I say, Mother, I'll either see you in a few hours, or I'll see you in heaven. And I 
I said, I love you. She said, I love you back. I kissed her and I left. Mother didn't make it off the table. Um, she went to heaven under anesthesia. How many want to try that? Yeah. Anyway, my point is, Mother wasn't anxious. She wasn't fearful or frightful. She was trusting in the God who had saved her years before. My mother died well, trusting God. Well, to die well, you, you must live and die trusting in God through Jesus Christ. All who die will fall into God's hands. That's a given. Some will find it a terrifying experience. Why? Because they trusted in themselves and they're about to face God's judgment. But those who know God as Father and Jesus as Savior will find comfort and a welcomed rest. Commit your spirit to the Father now and every day. And when the time comes, guess what? You will die well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's not fun thinking about death. But Ecclesiastes, he says he'd rather go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting because that is the end of all man, talking about death. And it makes us think some sobering thoughts that we probably need to be thinking about. We've seen how Jesus was our grand example there on the cross of how to die well. He, he entrusted himself to you to the very end. So God, I pray that you would give us the grace to do the same. God, become a reality in our life that when it does come to die, we'll say, praise be the name of Jesus. Father, is there anybody in here that doesn't know you through your son, Jesus Christ? I pray that you would touch their hearts, take out that heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh that they can see Jesus for who he really is. And again, it's for your honor and for your glory that we ask it. Amen. This morning, just going to give you a chance to respond. I hope that you're living a life now that will be, um, I don't know, conducive for dying well later. You know, we talked about, uh, what do you call it, uh, deathbed conversions, and how it's really not a good idea for anybody to say, oh, I've got plenty of time. I can do that down the road. I'm going to live for myself now. There's several things wrong for that. wrong with that. For one, you don't know that you have your next breath. Number two, you keep saying no to God, and it gets all the more harder every time to even consider saying yes. So I'm talking to you this morning for those that do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you hear something within you or you feel something that's probably in your soul slash spirit, the Holy Spirit just knocking and saying, hey, you need to listen. Don't run from it. Don't say, oh, I've got plenty of time. Paul says, today is the day of salvation. I encourage you to come forward and talk to me. We'll spend a little bit of time in Scripture. We'll pray, and I'll just share with you what, the, what Scripture says about salvation, how you can know God today as your Father. If you're a believer, I hope that you're living a life, as I said, that, that is conducive to dying well. If you're living well, if you are following God, seeking God now, do we have to be perfect? No. If that were the case, no, none of us would ever never, never get there. No, you don't have to be perfect. You have to be seeking God. 
And he's going to, re believe me, he's going to reveal your faults. <laughs> and then it's at that point that you can start working on them. But just in seeking God, you are living a life that is pleasing him. And when it comes time, time to die, you're going to die well. So I encourage you, live a life that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. If you do that, then when it comes time to die, you will die well. You won't be frightful. You won't be fearful. You'll be like Miss Kay says, what is God doing? Oh, I know who the other one was now. Uh, Jim and Carolyn Ward. Jim had bad cancer, went through one chemo. It didn't do anything, so he would said no more. He asked me to come over that day, and he says, David, he says, I'm dying tonight. He said, I know I'm dying tonight. And he wasn't frightful. He said, I just want you to pray with me. He said, I have a fantastic life, fantastic family, wife, but I know I'm going home to be with the Lord, and I just want you to pray with me. So I prayed with him. At 2 o'clock in the morning, he wakes up, and he's in the living room in a hospital bed. His wife is in the living room sleeping on the couch, and he wakes up totally wide awake. He never lost his ability to communicate or anything like that. He just, he just got to where he was wearing down. He woke up, he sat up in bed and said, what am I still doing here? I was supposed to die tonight. So he called me the next morning, and he says, Dave, I'm still here. I said, well, praise God, Jim. He goes, no, I was supposed to die. So I went back over. We talked some more, prayed some more. He died that night. He wasn't too far off, but that's the way you want to die. I know I'm going to be with Jesus. My goodness, what a testimony. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.